The Euros are approaching and Gareth Southgate faces perhaps the most challenging decision of his career to date. And there's no formula. Experience can trump energy. Favouritism can overcome form. Top six can topple top scorers. Some will miss out, perhaps wrongly, but they won't be the first. Over the past decades, countless talents have been overlooked. Prolific Premier League performers who were never capped for their country. This episode celebrates them. 11 Lions who never donned the England shirt. Yes, welcome to the podcast. And today it's the uncapped England 11. We'll be picking the very best players to have never played for England. They might have had England B caps, but not for the senior team. And today it's a good old fashioned 442 formation, as we like it quite often in this country, the functional formation. There have been certainly a lot of good names thrown into the mix. Yeah, I really love this episode, actually. I think we've got a bit of a treat. Some players you've probably forgotten about already. And actually, we've got some extra suggestions. Um, if you've listened to the 11 before, you will know that one position is up for grabs. Uh, today, it's the right midfield position. You'll have a nomination from Arthur, a nomination from me, and two very special guests will be putting forward their suggestion too. Uh, you can vote. Uh, that is on Twitter, at 11pod. It's the word and not the number. Okay, starting with goalkeeper, a lot of good options here. Ben, who have you gone for? Kevin Pressman. Oh, Do you recognise the name? Sheffield yeah. Wednesday. Yeah, yeah, Sheffield Wednesday. Well done. He actually played 404 games for Sheffield Wednesday, including wow. 243 in the top flight of English football. Somewhat of a legend for the Owls, Kevin Pressman. When you think of him towards the end of his career and, and more the sort of time we'd have been watching, he put on a little bit of weight. He was one of the bigger characters, but also the bigger keepers in the Premier League. So you may not necessarily have associated him with a spot in the England setup. However, earlier in his career, he was considered one of the very best goalkeepers in the top flight. Uh, he was called up to the senior squad numerous times, but he was normally third choice in the squad. And so he actually never played a minute for England. He carved out a bit of a niche for himself. He was particularly good at saving penalties. His record was, was outstanding and he made a number of key saves in penalty shootouts that Sheffield Wednesday were involved in. So he was the Ricardo of the English game. Well, 100%. And to be honest, part of the reason for me picking him for this uncapped England 11 is very much that. We failed in penalty shootouts time after time and what what better keeper to be able to rely on even if you do a sort of Tim Krull-esque substitute and bring him on for the shootout I've got a quote from Owl's Talk who uh, sum up his career quite nicely they've said I think there were basically two Kevin Pressmans the one which many seem to remember at the end of his career he got out of shape and did struggle to deal with low shots and one-on-ones but there was also the young guy who was an awesome keeper who probably should have been a regular at least a season or two before he was. He was up there with the very best English keepers of that era. Was David Seaman his main rival for the number one shirt? I think it was for the most part, Arthur. Um, throughout the 90s, obviously, Seaman was pretty nailed on as the number one. But even before that, Peter Shilton 
um, was England's first choice, sort of 89, 90, that era. So Pressman certainly had two of the best England goalkeepers of all time ahead of him. Perhaps that's why it just never happened. So Arthur, we need a good left back for this uncapped 11. I can think of a few options, but I'm intrigued as to who you've picked. So I've actually gone for a player who definitely played as left back in his career, but might be known more to some as a centre midfielder or a left midfielder. Well, that's controversial. It is a little bit. I've gone for Matty Taylor. Oh, okay, Uh, Justified, justified. He had a career that spanned 20 years and 742 appearances. Um, He started at Luton, um, where he was Young Player of the Year, and then he got signed up by Portsmouth and was part of a team that got promoted to the Premier League. And I think he was playing as part of a back five in kind of a an aggressive left wing back position. So utilising his attacking talent to make probing runs down the left. When people think of Matty Taylor, they think of him for the few absolutely unbelievable goals that he scored. Yeah, in I was going to say. We certainly mentioned him on the Worldies eleven, and his strikes against Sunderland and Everton in particular were absolutely incredible. But he was also renowned for his versatility. He had a deadly left foot. Harry Redknapp in particular liked him as a, a left back. Future managers attempted to move him further up the field, but then when Redknapp came back in... He wasn't so impressed with Gregory Vignal at left back. <laughs> well, and, you wouldn't be, would you? And enjoyed Andres D'Alessandro's attacking intent. So he decided to, to move Matty back to left back. In particular, I think his 2006-07 season was really, really impressive. He scored a couple of stunners. Portsmouth, I think, only just missed out on UEFA Cup qualification. And there was a feeling that the full England call-up wasn't too far away. And actually... That's where I think his versatility comes in, because in left midfield, England had a few very good options. I think Stuart Downing was playing well at the time. We had Joe Cole, of course. I thought he could have been a really good option in the left back spot that was traditionally held by Ashley Cole, who was a bit of an unmovable obstacle at left back, but he was injured at the time. So Mm. it was a really good opportunity for him to be called up, make his England debut, but he was sadly overlooked. One story that I quite enjoyed with Matty Taylor was when he went to Bolton, he had a choice between Bolton and Sunderland and Roy Keane recounted a story of meeting him at the Stadium of Light. They had a lengthy chat and Roy recounted that Matty Taylor said, I've got a lot to think about. Roy said, of course, you take your time. It's a huge decision. I'll walk you down to the car park. As we walk down, he says, listen, Roy, it's a huge decision. Thanks for the chat. I saw him walking to the car and said, Brilliant. Thanks for coming. He turns his back and I've got a text and not many people text me. It says, hi, Roy, it's Matty Taylor. I can see him getting into his car. The message (laughs) continued. I've decided to go to Bolton. (laughs) And there I am waving him out the car park. (laughs) Roy was considered perhaps so terrifying that Matty couldn't even say it to his face. He needed to text him. (laughs) It's always so good to hear people getting one over Roy. Um, but I, I totally agree with you. I think Matty Taylor was a wonderful player. Uh, one of the traps I feel maybe he fell into in terms of his England call-up was the fact that, as you mentioned, he was a utility player. He would play at left-back for a season, then he'd be shifted to left midfield. He was a regular within the Portsmouth side, but playing in a number of different roles. And I think when you come to pick players, particularly for major tournaments, 
there is an element of which you consider the best left backs in the country, the best left mids in the country, but not necessarily those who can fit in anywhere. Maybe there's room for one or two of those. But of course, James Milner is your archetypal utility man who was playing at the same time. That's very true. Perhaps Matty Taylor wasn't quite the level of of James Milner, such a such a Swiss Army knife of a player. But... <laughs> the Leatherman, I think, to partner Matty Taylor in the left side of that uncapped England defence, we need someone who has a physicality and a strength about them that perhaps Matty doesn't. Um, so I've picked Richard Rufus. <laughs> wow. An iconic name name from uh, 90s football. Uh, He actually spent his whole career at one club. um, That was Charlton Athletic. But he was forced to retire quite early on through injury, aged 29. He impressively was in the PFA Team of the Year in 1995 and 1999. Uh, He won three Player of the Year awards at Charlton. And in 2005... He was voted by fans as Charlton's greatest ever defender. Who are the best Charlton centre-backs? Well, you've got Chris Perry was in there for a while. Um, of I can think of, obviously, Gary Rowett, who used to play alongside him. Yes. Um, Gary Rowett had some England caps, didn't he? Uh, Gary Rowett didn't, no. Another player that Another. missed out. And, and actually, that was part of the controversy, to be fair, because England scouts were regularly at the Valley checking out Gary Rowett, Luke Young and Richard Rufus. Apparently, Gary Rowett said in, a, in an article that he, he actually almost knew them by name. They were always scouts watching the, the three of them. But of them, only Luke Young ever made an appearance for England. Um, Rowett and Rufus were overlooked. He was a defensive rock. Richard Rufus, um, an Amazon really at the back. Uh, his goal helped Charlton get promoted up to the Premier League from a playoff final against Sunderland. But I think what was particularly impressive about him was the, the speed at which he managed to adjust to the top flight of English football. And like I say, many people were calling for his inclusion. Unfortunately, things have gone a bit sour since the end of his football career, Arthur. Um, He's now accused of being a fraudster to the tune of £5.3 million. Um, So Richards ended up in a little bit of trouble. But certainly when he was in his prime, I felt an England cap wouldn't have been unjust. Absolutely. I think Charlton at the time, under were they under Alan Kerbishley? For, For much of that time, yeah. They had a wonderful team. I thought they were very good. They had several, um, yeah, really underrated players. Um, Mark Kinsella, uh, Clive Mendonca. They obviously had Pringle up front. Um, He was Swedish, so not an option. Kinsella was Irish. So actually, none of these are relevant to the uncapped England 11. (laughs) But a decent side, nevertheless. And Charlton are one of those sides that I think if you were getting interested in the Premier League now, you'd almost forget that once they were a a stalwart of the the Mm. league. Richard Rufus was probably victim of the fact that, especially during that period, England had such a wealth of strong centre-backs. The depth was incredible. You know, obviously you're looking at Rio Ferdinand, Ledley King, um, John Terry, all all of the legends of the game. And Richard Rufus perhaps just had too stern a competition for the position. I think there has to be an element as well of the the team he was playing for. I mean, no disrespect to to the players that we've mentioned so far, but we've had a Sheffield Wednesday icon, a Portsmouth icon and a Charlton icon. And there's all this talk about how the top six sides do tend to get calls up for the national side. 
maybe we're starting to prove that. Potentially. I'd like to disprove that, Ben, with my next nomination for a centre-back. I thought you'd do that. I've chosen Steve Bruce. What? He never played for England? Never played for England. But he was like Man United's first-choice centre-back, wasn't he, for a long time? You're you're quite right. Alongside Gary Pallister, he was a a rock at the heart of the defence for Man United. He captained Sir Alex Ferguson's dominant team in the early 90s. And he won three league titles and three FA Cups. Frankly, that's just staggering. But the captain of the dominant team in this country cannot be considered for England. I am baffled by that. Shocking. He was a goal scorer in the 1990-1991 season. He scored an unbelievable 19 goals in all competitions. It's very much like he's the Sergio Ramos of the English game during that (laughs) period. His heading ability was fearsome even though he was only six foot tall. He was brilliant taking penalties. You mentioned, obviously, England's struggles in that department over the course of history. So potentially he could have been a good option there. And he really showed leadership at the heart of the back line. He was very calm in possession and a very purposeful passer of the ball. He had moments of rambunctiousness. (laughs) (laughs) We're keeping the Um, vocab pretty highbrow. Absolutely. He just he just didn't look particularly graceful at times. But, you know, we're looking at a defender who racked up 414 appearances for Man United. Yeah. And it was almost as if he was cursed. His defensive partners kept on getting selected ahead of him. I think Dave Watson at Norwich got called up. Gary Pallister, as I mentioned, at United. But Bruce was captain of that United team. I think critics would point to his lack of pace compared mm. to some of his contemporaries, and also he had some pretty strong competition um, similar to, to Richard Rufus. So he had Tony Adams up against him, Des Walker, Mark Wright, quality centre-backs. So his best period of club form came in the early 90s, and that coincided with Graham Taylor being England manager. He was manager from 90 to 93. In 1987, Steve Bruce was called up to the England B team for his only appearance. He was made captain, But Graham Taylor, who's selecting the squad, said, you're captain, by the way, but it's not my choice. It's Bobby's. This is obviously Bobby Moore, who's England boss at the time. For me, you'd never be captain. In other words, I had been given the biggest accolade I'd ever had. And the manager in charge was telling me I was not good enough. In my eyes, to have that role, it was obvious he didn't like me. And when he became England manager, I didn't play again. He didn't rate me. I think it was just a clash of of styles. Graham Taylor remembered by many as not a particularly good England boss. I think we lost in the quarterfinals of the 92 European Championships, just didn't rate Steve Bruce. And so he didn't get his call up. I think there was a point where Sir Bobby Robson apologised later in his career for not picking Steve Bruce. I think he regretted the decision. It feels a real anomaly. Um, I think what would have really stuck the nail in the coffin for Steve would be if his son, Alex Bruce, formerly of, of Hull and Ipswich, had got an England call up. That would have been dire because I don't remember Alex being quite as good as his dad. Alex was actually called up by Ireland. And I think Steve Bruce had some opportunities to potentially be called up by Ireland, but he would have counted as an overseas player for Man ah, United. And I don't okay. think they wanted that um, in their in their squad for European competition. He was actually later in his career offered... Uh, what he came to describe as a sympathy cap. Under Terry Venables in 94, he was called up uh, for the game against Nigeria at Wembley. And he said in an interview, 
He rang me and said, I want to give you a cab. I declined. My best mate, Brian Robson, was Terry Venable's assistant, and he was desperate for me to get a cap. I turned it down. I was close to 35, and I said, I'm sorry, I'd rather not have an international career than just a sympathy cap. And I, I have to say, I respect that, the fact that he's, he's got quite strong morals. It just feels, it feels like quite a sad story, really, about Steve Bruce there and his missing international cap. I think it would be remiss not to mention Steve Bruce's brief career as an author. <laughs> if we're okay. discussing him. Um, when he was manager of Huddersfield back in 1999, yeah. he, he wrote three books and they were called Striker, Sweeper and Defender. He created a murder mystery solving football manager who managed Leddersfield Town. <laughs> <laughs> and his name was Steve Barnes. <laughs> That's fantastic. I love it. I might go and check out Amazon and see if I can order a copy. So right back. And I've gone for a player who has the most Premier League appearances at right back without an England call up. 351. Any guesses, Arthur? Wow. I have absolutely no idea. I've always felt he was he was worthy of a cap. Uh, and it was Steve Watson. Oh, very now, you, uh, you might remember Steve Watson from his time at Everton um, when he was playing more in a midfield role, actually, more often than not. But um, he was predominantly a right back at the beginning of his career when he was playing for Newcastle United. Um, he was actually their youngest ever player. He was a capable all-rounder, a utility man. Again, perhaps fell into the same trap as Matty Taylor from that respect, um, which is why he probably never really consolidated one position and, and moved around a lot within the eleven. Um, he found it really difficult to break into the England setup as a result of this. And actually, in a piece of writing, he said, I ended up signing as a striker, making my debut as a right winger. I moved back to right back. And then as the rest of my Newcastle career will tell you, I played pretty much everywhere. I started at least one or two games in every position. And I was sub keeper a lot of the time as well. <laughs> so I covered pretty much everywhere on the park. Uh, I, I can't even begin to imagine someone who has the qualities to play in every single position across the park but clearly Steve Watson did he had something from a very young age that people were were really impressed by I think probably the highlight of Steve Watson's career came um, at Newcastle United he played 36 out of 38 games in the 1996-7 Premier League season when Newcastle finished second now, to think that a side that were competing for the Premier League title had a, an English right back who was playing week in, week out, but yet he still couldn't make it into the 1998 World Cup squad it is quite surprising. But um, again, with most of these players, there is someone in their way, the reason they can't be capped for England. And in this case, it was Gary Neville. He was just emerging at Manchester United. Uh, he started playing regularly for the first team. And by the time that World Cup came along, uh, Steve Watson just wasn't in the reckoning. So unfortunately, he never got that cap he deserved. I mean, that was the golden generation of England, really. The one that criminally underachieved in many people's views and Gary Neville you can't really argue with that frankly but it sounds from what you've just recounted there that he was one of the best if not competing with Gary Neville for to be the best right back in the country so quite why he wasn't in the squad getting a few appearances here and there is a pretty baffling stat 
I think he showed a lot of promise at quite a young age, Steve Watson. Um, but I don't know about you, but obviously my age, 1998, that was the kind of iconic World Cup for me. That was when I really got into football, um, watching videos and, and old VHSs of that tournament. It's hard to believe that England didn't progress further. We had such a glittering array of talent. Owen, Shearer, Beckham, Skulls, all coming through at the right time. Um, it's easy to see how players didn't get capped in the late 90s, and, and Steve Watson was one of them. What a stunning goal from Matty Taylor! That's why Steve McLaren is keeping a close eye on Matty Taylor. What a strike! Arthur, we can talk about players who were uncapped for England as much as we like. In fact, we will. We'll talk about it for the rest of this episode. But just for a brief interlude, I wanted to mention those who have won caps for England, perhaps unexpectedly. Uh, they've made very few, uh, but they have appeared in the England jersey, much to our surprise. Uh, it's a little quiz for you. We've okay. got five rounds. We'll see what score you get. And of course, you can play along at home and let us know how you get on at 11 pod word not number essentially what i want you to tell me is which of these players won the most england caps hey. every player i'm about to mention won less than five um, but they have Ooh. all played for england first round matt jarvis the ex-wolves and norwich winger don't know how okay. he played for england and Hugo ehiogu who of course Ooh. sadly passed away recently aston villa center half um I think Ugo. That's correct. I, yes. Matt Jarvis, one cap. Hugo Ehiogu, four caps. Um, I was actually looking at Hugo for the 11 because I couldn't remember any of his times he played for England, but he did. He actually went to a major tournament with the side, but only oh, made wow. four appearances in total. Round two, David Unsworth versus Gabby Agbonlahor. So that's the Everton fullback known for taking penalties or the rapid Aston Villa winger who I, I really don't know how he played for England, Gabby Agbon Lahore. That I think, actually incenses me. I think a few Villa fans were in touch with us about various things and they said he literally had pace and nothing else. I don't understand how that's happened. I think it's going to surprise people, but I think Agbon Lahore had more. You're absolutely right. Yeah. David Unsworth, the goal-scoring defender, made just one cap for England, um, whereas Gabby Agbon Lahore made three Ooh. during a very, fairly barren spell for our strike force. <laughs> uh, round three, full mark so far, Arthur. Aaron Cresswell, um, who I rate highly, but again, I'm, I'm quite surprised he's broken into the England setup. Um, West Ham defender and Nicky Shorey. Um, a player that I love for his time at Reading. I think Nicky Shorey might be a one-cat wonder, so I'm going to go for Aaron. You're right to go for Aaron Cresswell. Aaron Cresswell, three caps. Nicky Shorey made two caps for oh, England. Very good. <laughs> I, I just remember being in the crowd and everyone used to chant Shorey for England week after week. He eventually got got that cap in a friendly against Brazil they listened yeah I mean, he was amazing he was amazing his his left-footed delivery was second to none during that Premier League season where we finished eight so I was delighted that he did eventually get the cap he deserved but of course yeah. competing with Ashley Cole 
very difficult to get in. Round four, uh, another Reading player, actually, John Salarco, but perhaps best known for his spell at Crystal Palace. And he takes on Gavin McCann, the Sunderland midfielder. <laughs> I had no idea Gavin McCann had played for England. I know, I, I don't get that one at all. Surely Salarco beats him. He does. It's yes. five caps for John Salarco and uh, just the one cap for Gavin McCann. But uh, if he can make it, there's hope for us all. <laughs> so round number five, uh, and this is the final round. You're going for full marks here. Bobby Zamora had a brief spell in the England squad. Of course, QPR striker, Fulham striker too. Michael Dawson, centre-half, played for Tottenham and Hull. I think, ooh, this is this is a tough one. I think it's a sort of a 3-2 situation again. And I'm going to go for Michael Dawson. Full marks, Arthur. Yes. Well done. Michael Dawson, four caps. Bobby Zamora, just two caps. He, he's oh, one wow. of those players I really remember playing for England, Bobby Zamora. So I was quite surprised to read he'd only appeared twice. Great player as well. He had that amazing season for Fulham when they got mm. to the Europa League final. I and mean, he was pretty unplayable that season. Him and Zoltan Gera. He was. I think, again, like Agbon Lahore, it was a time when we were really struggling to nail down our strike force, weren't we? We experimented with Jay Bothroyd and Kevin Davis and Agbon Lahore and Zamora. Um, troubled times. Agbon Lahore is away and this could clinch it. Agbon Lahore looking to score again, but he doesn't. Scoops it over the bar. It's poor, really poor. Look at all the Villa fans behind the goal. So England have had golden generations of midfielders. Bobby Charlton, David Beckham, Paul Scholes. So there was no room for these four. Start us off with the left midfield, Arthur. Etherington. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> when you consider alongside the, the golden generation, <laughs> Bobby Charlton. <laughs> um, okay. Matt Etherington is a player who, and I don't actually have an, an enormous amount of stats to back this decision up, but he's a player who I always rated very, very highly. And actually looking into it a little, little deeper, I, I discovered that he was very much considered a rising star at Spurs. He made a move from Peterborough, aged just 19, and he struggled to establish himself at Spurs before he made the move to the first of two clubs where he, he had some really encouraging form and, and form that I thought warranted a call-up, he moved to West Ham. He made 165 appearances, scoring 16 goals over a six-year spell, uh, including helping them win promotion from the championship and re-establishing them as a Premier League club. And then he finished his career at Stoke City, where he added a new dimension to their play. They were under Tony Pulis, known as a little bit of a Route 1 team. But he was able to distribute pretty incisive passes um, from the wing. He's pretty confident about his ability. There's a nice little quote from him here, which says, I had a time at West Ham and without doubt at Stoke, where I feel I was in the top three English wingers in the league, um, which wow. is quite a bold shout. He clearly I mean, that's, supports that's a complete load of tosh, isn't it, really? <laughs> <laughs> Very true. And he goes on to say, actually, it didn't happen. He's talking about the call up here. And that did frustrate me. England managers, past and present, say they pick players on form. Complete rubbish, in my opinion. It's never been the case. And maybe that's one of the reasons we struggle at every major tournament. What do you think of that, Ben? 
That's an interesting debate um, and one that I know has had time after time. Should the England manager pick exclusively on form or on perceived quality? But I'm just not sure about the whole form argument in the sense that you can have a couple of good games at Stoke, Matthew. But does that necessarily mean that we need to throw you in against you know, the Brazilians in the World Cup, I would I would probably argue no. There's a lot of players that are playing European football and yes, they might not be 10 out of 10 every week, but surely they're in a better place to represent the country uh, than a Stoke player who's had a few good games. That's a good point. Um, I think there were periods of time at West Ham where he, he showed incredibly good form. He actually had quite big problems with gambling, mm. um, which sort of saw his West Ham on-field performance dip when he moved to Stoke I think the period 2009 to 2011 is the period I would have called for his call up to the England squad he was brought in and was very successful he kind of was showing a bit of a new lease of life after moving out of London which I think was the association with his gambling problems and he rediscovered that form that he'd shown in his early years at West Ham he was crowned I think Stoke player of the year uh, in his first season, he signed a new contract, continued that improvement of form in 2010-11. He got pretty key goals and assists uh, and, and Stoke finished comfortably in mid-table and they reached their first FA Cup final. I think a particular game that shows his talent was their 5-0 demolition of Bolton Wonders in the semi-final of the FA Cup that, mm. that year. He got a, a wonderful goal and just dictating the tempo of Stoke City, who were actually looking kind of like prime Barcelona <laughs> with Kedwin Jones up front, occupying Bolton defenders like no tomorrow. I mentioned Stuart Downing earlier. I don't think Stuart Downing was that good a player. Um, and I think England haven't always looked particularly good on the left of midfield. So I always thought Matt Etherington would be a good call up. Yeah, and I think actually we're in this particular instance, Arthur, I think you've made a great selection. We're playing 4-4-2, and I think that sort of style would suit Etherington. Maybe part of the problem is that England have quite often favoured the more attacking, quick, goal-scoring wingers of late. Um, And and Etherington strikes me as one of the more old-fashioned wingers. Get the ball down the wing, cross it into the box, quality delivery. I'd put him in the Matt Jarvis camp. I'm not a massive fan, but then Matt Jarvis got a cap and Matt Etherington didn't. So I do think it's a a very valid suggestion. True. And I I think potentially another player to equate him to, who was also a narrow miss out on this uncapped 11, Mark Albrighton. Mm, Both slightly similar creators very much rather than regularly producing the end product. In centre midfield, I've actually gone for another player who did play for Stoke for a little while but the part of his career I want to focus on is at my beloved Reading Steve Sidwell oh (laughs) is is he the secret footballer uh no I think that was another ginger Reading player actually (laughs) Arthur Dave Dave Kitson oh easy mistake to make there yes uh Sidwell was wonderful I mean one of my all-time favorite players to watch he formed an unbelievable partnership with James Harper um during our first season in the Premier League um, and he was instrumental in getting us there in the first place a midfield dynamo all action box to box he was quick um, he used to put his foot in. He, he actually had a great strike on him um, and scored quite a few goals in that promotion season. But generally, 
he was the sort of midfield player that you hated to play against because he was always nipping at your heels. He had such great tactical awareness. He was disciplined. I really can't speak highly enough of, of the way Steve Sidwell propelled Reading um, into eighth position in that first Premier League season. Uh, so it wasn't surprising that, that come the end of his contract, he wanted to move elsewhere. He had interest from clubs across the Premier League, but the one that caught his eye was Chelsea. I think this is where it went wrong for him and perhaps the reason he never did represent his country. The Reading fans' voice managed to get Nicky Shorey into that England setup, and I'm sure with Steve Sidwell, something similar would have happened over time. But unfortunately, he signed for Chelsea. He became their number nine. Um, which was a a shirt filled by many greats over the years. So there were high expectations, Um, but it coincided with a period in Chelsea's history where uh, they had all the money that they could ever want and were able to sign top quality talent from across the world. So whilst getting Steve Sidwell on a free was a no brainer, by the time the season started, he was second, maybe third choice um, for that centre midfield berth and was restricted to very limited game time under Mourinho. Was his move to Chelsea largely to fulfil their English player quota? I don't know. I think it was just the case that one of the top quality players that, that the Premier League had offered that season was available on a free. And I think everyone wanted him as a result. And of course, Reading couldn't offer the salary that Chelsea did. He probably doubled his salary when he moved to Stamford Bridge. Mourinho was a massive fan and Sidwell was led to believe he would play more often. Unfortunately, he didn't, but he did manage to carve out a pretty successful time uh, of things later on in his career, made appearances for Stoke and Fulham before a final move to Brighton. Uh, where he was a su- surprise success and actually played a key role in getting them promoted to the Premier League for the first time, um, a feat that he'd already achieved with Reading. We are Brighton.com described him as one of the most underrated signings Brighton have made in the last decade. And I couldn't agree more, to be honest, having seen a few of his performances against us. I believe that Steve Sidwell could have been an option to solve the lampard Gerard debate that we've been having over the years. Lampard and Gerrard were just too similar as players and having a player alongside them um, who had the kind of the courage and the tackle and the dynamism like Steve Sidwell may well have been the answer. I'm very prepared to be shot down. Um, I I may uh... have to leave this show as a result of my partisan support. Um, It's been great fun over the years. Uh, I love Steve Sidwell. Yeah, I'm going to shoot you down here, Ben. I think... um... Steve Sidwell's two best seasons. He was very good in that first Premier League season for Reading, but his two most successful seasons, judging by what you've just said, is firing Reading to promotion from the Championship and firing Brighton to promotion from the Championship, which I think proves that he was an incredibly good Championship centre midfielder. But I don't think he really did shine hugely after he left Reading. He had that great first season for Reading in the Premier League, but then couldn't get game time at Chelsea. I think he slightly flattered Deceiver at Villa. Did he play for Fulham as well? Mm, Yeah, he did. I don't think he ever really reached the heights of that first season at Reading. And I agree completely with you that potentially that move to Chelsea was his downfall. But suggesting that he could have been a sort of Lampard-Gerrard solution in the centre of the field in that golden generation. Mm. I disagree with you, Ben. This is fair enough, Arthur, but I will stand by Steve 
in this uncapped 11 until my dying day. An interesting fact about Steve Sidwell, just to finish off this um, wonderful piece that I've, I've written about him, my love letter to Steve. He now runs a baby clothes company with his wife called Blousy Baby. <laughs> our, our listeners are going to be desperate to check that out now. They, they can't wait. I can almost hear them typing away at their laptops now. So, Arthur, a centre midfielder before we move up front, because the right mid is up for grabs, obviously. To be fair, I've realised, having just shot down your suggestion of Steve Sidwell, that suggesting that this player could have equally partnered Lampard or Gerrard in the centre of the park (laughs) is slightly ridiculous as well. So, here we go. Kevin Nolan. Oh, yeah, much better. Yeah, oh, yeah, much better. Okay. (laughs) I mean, actually, I happen to agree with you that that Kevin Nolan not getting an England cap is a bit disastrous because I rated him very, very highly. Likewise, he had 14 seasons in the Premier League. He capped in three Premier League sides and he scored 111 goals from midfield, which is pretty phenomenal. I think a good way of describing him would be as a budget Frank Lampard, really. Mm. Um, The knack of arriving in the box at just the right minute to finish off moves. And you mentioned as well that Steve Watson made the most appearances of any right back not to be capped by England. And actually, Kevin Nolan had the most Premier League games played for any uncapped English player full stop at wow. 401 until none other than Mark Noble recently broke it. Um, <laughs> right, and actually, okay. both of those iconic West Ham centre midfielders have fairly good claims for this role. He had a particularly productive period from 2009 to 2013. He scored 51 goals in just 151 games. I think it can be argued that Kevin Nolan's most important contribution to English football is his funky chicken celebration. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to mention that. Didn't it derive from a holiday in Ibiza or something bizarre? That is excellent knowledge. I, yeah. I actually have no idea where it yeah, came from. Yeah, it was like a, a team holiday in Ibiza and he was doing it on the dance floor and then it just stuck and followed yeah. him throughout his career. Love that. And I just think it's bizarre that he never had an England cap when you think of how much experience he has in the Premier League and how long he's been around. It's quite mm. shocking, I think. He didn't have the glamour of some of the, the players in that England setup, did he? But he could have been hugely effective. I think that's a really good shout. I, I can see how Nolan and Sidwell would, would work well in a dynamic midfield. Forget Lampard and Gerrard. I want to give the first striker position in our uncapped England eleven to Marcus Stewart. Yes. So in his first season in the Premier League after playing for Ipswich, he was the Premier League's second top goal scorer and he was the division's highest English goal scorer. This was during the 2000-2001 season. Uh, He scored 19 goals and he took his recently promoted Ipswich Town side to fifth in the Premier League, qualifying for the UEFA Cup and, of course, leading many fans to be uh, calling for his inclusion in the England team that summer. That's a pretty strong form from Marcus. Incredibly strong form. Um, He made the PFA Team of the Year that year. He was a bit of a one-season wonder. And I guess it begs the question, if you do have that one season where you shine, is that enough to warrant a place in the England in the England setup? Um, I've looked at another few one-season wonders that, that played up front. Michael Ricketts, 
He scored 15 goals for Bolton one season, and he earns one cap off the back of that. Uh, And Andy Johnson, I'm sure you'll remember him from his Palace days, he scored 21 goals in one Premier League season for Palace, and he got himself eight caps. But when you look at the rest of their careers, really those two were one-season wonders as well. So you've got to ask the question, how Marcus Stewart never made an appearance for England, given what an unbelievable time he had during the 2000-2001 season. After a hat-trick at the Dell, you might be familiar with this game, Arthur. (laughs) He said, it was after that game I thought I might get an England call-up. Not that I thought about it much, that's not my style, but I must admit I did wonder if I would get it, because I felt if I didn't get it now, then when would I? I guess you can probably point to the fact that there was such a strong crop of English strikers at the time, Hmm. which meant that despite one season, perhaps the manager wanted to see him back it up with another season. I, I seem to remember he was pretty good at Sunderland as well, wasn't he? Well, you say that about the, the, the crop of English talent. I've done a little bit of digging for this particular one. Unfortunately, Ipswich were actually relegated the following season and Marcus Stewart scored just six goals. Um, hence the one season wonder tag. There wasn't a major tournament after his iconic Ipswich season. However, of course, the 2002 World Cup, which was in South Korea and Japan, was held the following year. And if you look at the two seasons, the build up to that major tournament, Marcus Stewart in total, that's 25 goals across those two seasons. Michael Owen, 35. Teddy Sheringham, 25. Emil Heskey, 23, Darius Vassell, 16, Robbie Fowler, 11. So there's three strikers there, Heskey, Vassell and Fowler, which Marcus Stewart outscored, two of them quite considerably in the build-up to that tournament. I guess this comes back to the prioritising form over stature in the game because Robbie Fowler, I don't think anyone would say he was an unjustified call-up for England. Marcus Stewart was the form striker, potentially, you could say. But Robbie Fowler was potentially the better striker. It's a it's a difficult call. It's an aging legend against an inform, um, relatively inexperienced striker. I guess they went for they went for the age in the end. Uh, he did make Matt Holland's best Ipswich Town eleven as well. Marcus Stewart. He said of Marcus, such an intelligent player. He knew when to come short and when to spin in behind. He could link play brilliantly, and he was so cool in front of goal. His most impressive asset was his movement. So clever he was and difficult to mark. So a glowing endorsement from Matt. Who have you gone for to partner Marcus up front? So I've gone for Kevin Campbell. Right. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. That's Um, a nice one. We quite like the, particularly in this episode, the most X for an uncapped English player and Kevin Campbell fulfills our quota of most Premier League goals ever for an England uncapped player. Really? 83 Premier League goals. That's a lot. Yeah, it's a a huge amount. And he's shone for the likes of Arsenal, Nottingham Forest and Everton. In his 1990-91 season, aged just 21, he scored eight times in the final 10 matches for Arsenal to fire them to their first first division title in three years and he looked like a massive massive prospect at the time a couple of steady seasons before the peak of his Arsenal career in 93-94 where he fired 19 goals in attack alongside Ian Wright so 
he's looking every bit the star at the time. And of course, Ian Wright played many times for England. So the call never came for Kevin Campbell. He had a bit of a loss of form and it was eventually sold to Nottingham Forest. They were a club in free fall at the time and they did get relegated. But in the championship, he formed a deadly partnership with Pierre Van Huijonk. Yeah, is I remember. One of my yeah. favorite. He's definitely one of my favorite named players, probably second only to Jan Venegor of Hesselink. <laughs> Whatever happened to Jan? He just disappeared after his Celtic spell. He went to yeah, Hull, he had, didn't he? he? Yeah, he had Hull briefly in the Premier yeah. League. And then, um, yeah, just it sort of went downhill. But Kevin Campbell and Van Huijonk together, they contributed 52 goals in a season that, that fired Nottingham Forest back to the Premier League. And actually, Kevin Campbell was then sold to Trabantspor in Turkey. And this famously caused Van Huijonk to go on strike, which uh, showed his attitude problems player. I love the way you say Van Huijonk. I, I've oh, always okay. thought it was just Pierre Van Huijonk. But I think it is. <laughs> Van Huijonk. Pierre, we'll call him from now on. Um, I think if Kevin Campbell had stayed at Forest, he would have got capped for England. He was looking incredibly good um, for Nottingham Forest. Kevin had many peaks in his career, including when he went to Everton and scored nine in his first eight games to almost single-handedly save them from relegation. But it was very much punctuated by some pretty big lows. Injuries always threatened his... um, runs of good form he had that run at Forest and then he left he had that run at Everton then got injured he's another that falls into this category of players of a solitary England B cap (laughs) (laughs) Um, but never got called up for the the senior side he obviously had some pretty stern competition in Owen Shearer Heskey but he never played actually in contrast to a few other players in this 11 he took his omission from the team pretty well It wasn't exasperated like Etherington and Nolan were. He said, I was not disappointed at all not to play for England. The England manager's job is hard enough with so many players to choose from to play for the team. There were a lot of good players in that era, so it's difficult to get into the team. I was named in a lot of squads, but never got a cap. However, I'm still proud to be called up. I think with Kevin Campbell and Marcus Stewart up front, there's definitely goals in this side. I can't wait to hear who the right midfielder is now. Good ball to Hardyman. Rovers players loads up there. Ball comes in. 2-0. And Marcus Stewart is the hero. What a goal. Okay, so on to the up for grabs position. Shaking things up a little bit this week, we've got four nominations for this position, which this week is right midfield. So exciting. Um, two, Two friends of the show are providing their suggestions. And first up, we have Adam Hurry who is the presenter of the absolutely wonderful Football Clichés podcast. I'm absolutely obsessed with this show. And he's very kindly offered us this nomination. The Uncapped England eleven is very much a favourite niche of mine. So I wanted to give it the, uh, the scrutiny and the research that it deserves. When selecting players who sort of just about missed out on an England cap, I feel like the only place to go and look for players of this ilk, is the list of England B fixtures in the 1990s. And scrolling through that, you see the likes of Nicky Summerby and various others. But the name that instantly jumped out at me was a very, very 90s winger 
chalk on his boots type, diminutive, eye-catching, without being too extravagant. A winger very much of the age, you know, about a decade before the inverted wingers, um, at a time when the idea of cutting inside was so exotic and so alien. On top of all that, the the fact that he, he got two England B-caps while still maintaining a very, very solid Premier League career puts him right on the cusp of the England team. Perhaps he perhaps he suffered from the Venables hoddle handover and he kind of fell between the cracks there. But my answer, after all that build-up, is former Tottenham and Newcastle winger and Montserrat International in the end, Rule Fox. He really does sit in that very, very specific sweet spot of somehow didn't play for England in the early to mid-1990s. He is my shout for right midfield, and I'd challenge anyone to find a better nomination for that spot than Rule Fox. Oh, that's a good pick. Adam, thanks so much for that. What do you reckon, Arthur? Yeah, I think, um, as Adam said, played for Montserrat in the end, and that's probably as a result of exasperation at constantly being overlooked. Newcastle manager... Uh, Kevin Keegan, when he played for Newcastle, described him as the best player in his position in the country. Mm. Um, So he was very much a fast, tricky winger who was a handful for defenders. And I'm a bit shocked that he he never got a cap, frankly. Yeah, difficult to compete with Rule Fox for this right midfield position. Um, But I've been in touch with Ben Kay. Ben Kay, a big friend of the podcast, former expression sport pundit and currently the founder of Bear Fruit, a fruit drink business. Do check them out. Uh, He's come up with this suggestion. Hi, it's Ben Kay here. And my nomination for the right midfield position for the England uncapped 11 is someone who has one goal in three games for his club, has been called up to the England squad twice, once with an unused substitute and once had to pull out through injury, so hasn't made an appearance and last month was uh, rumoured to be looking for a Jamaican passport, but then wasn't called up to the Jamaica squad. So I feel like this is an opportunity for him to get in the eleven, and that might bring him back into the England fold. So maybe the campaign starts here. So my nomination is Mikel Antonio. Mm, actually, a player that played for both of our teams, Arthur. He did. I remember him on loan at Southampton in League One, and he scored a goal in the Johnston's Paint Trophy final. So for that, I will be forever grateful. Maybe it's a bit late for him now. I think he's 31, but I think a very good shout. Yeah, he's averaged a goal in every three games, which when you consider it hasn't always been up front for West Ham. Um, I think that's a pretty impressive stat. I want to throw a name into the mix from the 90s, really, uh, the 90s and noughties, and that's Darren Huckabee. Oh, Darren. A, a, a great player. I used to love watching Darren Huckabee. He was always the entertainer, um, a pacey dribbler who could also play up front. Uh, he scored 14 goals in one Premier League season, which considering he's not an out-and-out striker, I thought was quite an impressive haul. Started his career at Lincoln City down in Division 3, um, but worked his way up. Signed for Coventry for a million pounds in 1996, where he scored 28 goals in 94 games. He had good spells at Norwich City and Manchester City. He played in both the Champions League and the UEFA Cup for Leeds. So certainly someone who's who's cut it at the highest level. He was a two-time Norwich City Player of the Year when he moved down to the Championship um, in the twilight of his career. 
Um, so really everything stats wise and on paper that you would look for from an England midfielder, but no cap, which really surprises me. If you're interested in Darren Huckabee's later career, he moved to uh, the US and there is this fantastic interview with uh, a US news station. He just signed for the San Jose Earthquakes uh, and the interviewer clearly has no knowledge of football whatsoever. He is an English legend. Uh, he is a legend and uh, we'll see how legendary he is with an interview. Darren, can you handle it? I'll try my best. Okay, my friend. He's a legend. Next. Uh, he comes from the Norfolk team. The last five years starring in, Nor in Northeast England, scored 34 goals. You supposedly, again, according to the internet and our international sources, are responsible for the greatest goal ever. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, I don't know about that. Uh, I scored a couple of good goals. But... It was against Manchester. Yeah, yeah, there's a few years ago. We're, but... we're looking at it here. Man, you're weaving through everybody. Yeah, it's a, like I say, it's a long time ago. Just for surviving that interview alone, I would say Darren Huckabee deserved an England cap. You suggested one too, haven't you, Arthur? I have indeed. It's a player that I never actually got to see play um, as he was at his peak well before I was born. Mm. I've gone for Jimmy Case. Okay. He's um, a player I grew up enjoying as a match summariser for BBC Radio Solent. Very mm. insightful in analysis of Southampton games. Um, very much known for his time at Liverpool. He was a three-time European Cup winner and four-time league champion and a very integral part of possibly the greatest club side ever. He was tough tackling and physical, which isn't necessarily the attributes you'd expect of a, of a wide midfielder. But he say. wasn't really a wide midfielder. He was more an inside midfielder, tucked in to allow the fullbacks to attack from wide positions. Um, he scored some absolutely cracking goals, had a bullet shot um, that I think Wikipedia claims is one of the hardest shots in football. <laughs> right, um, shot power 99. Absolutely. And he came close to getting in uh, the England squad, which was managed at the time by Ron Greenwood. But the manager favoured very much out-and-out -out wingers, um, which left Case a little bit out in the cold. I wonder whether he could have played for England at centre midfield, perhaps. He played over 100 games after he left Liverpool for Brighton um, before heading to Southampton, where he's remembered as a club legend. Because of his advancing years he was moved to centre midfield and everything revolved around him he was a key experience in the dressing room with young stars like Matt Letizier, Alan Shearer and the Wallace brothers thriving alongside his kind of metronomic influence in the centre of the park. Ian Branfoot is a manager who is remembered amongst the Southampton fan base as one of the most unpopular managers in the club's history mm -hmm. and he got a lot of flack for letting Jimmy Case go on a free immediately after he was appointed. Now, bear in mind at the time that Jimmy Case was 37. Um, and the fact that the club fan base found it an outrage that we were letting a centre midfielder of that age go, I think shows his class. He had been player of the year at the club at the age of 36. <laughs> uh, and he just, he just seems to be absolutely timeless. Considering the quality of that Liverpool team that he played in, I think it's frankly pretty shocking that he never played for England. Yeah, I mean, before my time, uh, you've made a great case for case. 
and looking forward to seeing how he fares on our poll. Uh, it'll be coming out shortly after this episode is released. So head over to Twitter at 11pod uh, and you can place your vote for who you think should be the right midfielder in our uncapped England 11. Your choice is Raul Fox, Michael Antonio, Darren Huckabee or Jimmy Case. Okay, on the bench, who just missed out for you, Ben? Yeah, there are a few that were worthy of a mention. Um, Steve Grizovic. Uh, he wasn't a player I ever saw, which is why I didn't include him. But I think he has a very good case for competing with Kevin Pressman for the goalkeeper spot in our uncapped England eleven. Uh, he had a very successful spell with Coventry over many years. Um, Jermaine Pennant. Had a lot of off-the-field problems, but a potential inclusion in the wide positions. Um, and the final name I wanted to mention was Jimmy Bullard, a player I really enjoyed watching. Um, obviously, he's become somewhat of a television celebrity with his uh, I'm a Celeb and Soccer AM exploits. But at, at the time when he was playing for Fulham, there were few that were technically better than him in the Premier League, but no place in the starting lineup for England. Also, I think worthy of consideration in goal is Tony Cotton. Uh, again, yes, slightly before yeah. my time, but quality goalkeeper. And a, a West Ham icon in Billy Bonds. Um, he was an mm. exceptional defender, but considered by many to be potentially the best centre-back to have never played for England. Well, I think this eleven is shaping up nicely. And, and when we read it out, you'll think, how have they never been capped? Arthur, do you want to run us through? Of course, we've got Kevin Pressman in goal, left-back Matt Taylor, centre-back partnership of Steve Bruce and Richard Rufus. At right-back, we've got Steve Watson. In the centre of the park, Steve Sidwell and Kevin Nolan. On the left, Matt Etherington. On the right, we've got an up-for-grabs position of Darren Huckabee, Jimmy Case, Rule Fox or Mikhail Antonio. And then up front, leading the line, we have Marcus Stewart and Kevin Campbell. I love it. Thanks for listening to The Eleven. See you next time. I'm wondering who you've gone for here. Let, let me know. So, let me know. <laughs> yeah, that was a bit strange, wasn't it? So, Arthur, um, you're looking at the left back today, and I'm, I'm pretty intrigued by this one. Um, who have you gone for, mate? Yeah, it's a... <laughs> Sorry, who have you gone for, mate? <laughs> I'll, I'll try it again. So, Arthur, you've been looking at the left-back, haven't you? I'm I'm pretty intrigued about this one. Go on, hit me <laughs> up. <laughs> so, Arthur, you've looked at the left-back for this 11. Um, I'm intrigued by this one. Set me a name. I've actually gone... <laughs> <so> <laughs>